Hello. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Osha here. Thanks for downloading the show. Hope you had a good weekend. Did you have a good Mother's Day? Was it great? Uh, the country may be opening a little bit. Uh, we are in a pandemic right now. The country may be opening a little bit. A few people may be going back to work, but Andy and Rachel, they've worked the whole way through. They've helped me make this show for the last couple of weeks, and uh, I do need to pay them. So depending on where you're listening to this show, you might hear an ad right now. Okay, so I'm just letting you know. If you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping me pay Andy and Rachel, two extraordinary people without which I could not make this show. Now, I did hear someone on Instagram got in touch with me the other day. They listen to the podcast in Sweden, and there's ads in Swedish, which is excellent because I drop in a little Andy drops in well, Andy drops in a little marker, and then a local ad gets inserted. So I have no idea what they're advertising in Sweden. Do IKEA advertise in Sweden? They're from that makes no sense, but they might. I don't know. I'd love to know. Do they advertise bed sheets? Is it is it a bank? Is it something that is morally reprehensible as far as the rest of this podcast goes? I'd love to know. Email me, please. Tell me what product is being advertised on this show in Sweden. What about you, the one person who listens in Myanmar? What ad do you hear? I'd love to know because there is one person in Myanmar and there's one person in my mother's home country of Lithuania that listens to this show. What ad do you get? I'd love to know. Send us your email at gmail.com. All right, I'm just curious. Anyway, so here, here the ad might be here. If not, it'll be uh, Dr. Richard Dennis saying something super cool and then the funky theme song, and then I'll be back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With COVID-19, the Australian government has decided to listen to the science and err on the side of caution, a decision I wholeheartedly agree with. I understand why people get sort of frustrated and think, why don't politicians listen to science or why can't we make good long-run decisions? My answer doesn't make anyone happy because my answer is, well, sometimes we listen to science when we want to and sometimes we plan decades ahead when we want to. What politicians don't want to admit 
is that it's up to them to decide when they want to and when they don't. And we don't actually help ourselves saying if only they understood science, they'd tackle climate change. They understood science. That's why they just crushed the curve on COVID-19. They know how to plan ahead. That's why they spent $200 billion on subs we'll probably never use to go with the $20 billion worth of tanks we've never used. We know how to do prevention, comma, when we want to. It's a political question. When do we want to? That is economist and author Dr. Richard Dennis, and this is episode 336 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I appreciate you very much being part of the show. It's episode 336 of the show. Uh, This podcast, what is it? Well, it's simply a conversation designed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something that you hear today will, you know, help you maybe adjust the way you do things or think about things. And then tonight you'll go to bed and go, you know what, it's a little bit better than it was. That's it. That's all we're here to do. On Mondays, I talk with a guest. On Fridays, I talk with you. I've been doing this twice a week since 2013. Long time. 336 episodes don't happen by accident, but they do happen just by doing them. That's it. Anyway, it's good to good to be here. It's good to be having this podcast to do while uh, we're not doing anything else, while we're not shooting. I'm grateful to have the podcast and having some cracking conversations, and particularly this one um, with Dr. Richard Dennis. Really grateful to get a, a proper like economist, like professor, on to talk about just what the hell is going on and what we might expect, because there's a lot of spin for every angle, and it was it's nice to get someone on who can give it to us straight, as far as I'm concerned. It, anyway, it's a great chat. Thanks very much to everybody who uh, sent me an email through the week. Send Osher email at gmail.com. It's real easy to find me. Thank you so much to the people that also sent me a picture of where they listen to the show. Just tag me on Instagram, Haley, who looks after my socials, makes sure I see it. I'm grateful to be a part of your exercise routine. I really am, because I'm going on a lot of walks with you. A lot of walks, a lot of dog walks, a lot of gym work. Great. Bloody great. I'm fanging it I'm, I'm getting right onto the um getting right into the zwift and it's really good really good i did a, a, a group ride this morning with about 300 people in my house i know it's weird but it was great it was really good so thanks very much to everybody that sent me a picture of what they're thinking about and what they're listening i've, I've people on zwift that listen to the podcast so i've been on zwift which is a cycling uh, game that i play the game by you don't like most video games you sit there with a controller in your hand and you don't move on Zwift you have to sweat your balls off if you want to win it's very hard but it's great and some people on you can chat group chat on Zwift and um, people listen to the show people listen to the podcast and it's freaking awesome so it's cool hi thanks for listening we're on there together right on so uh, the other great thing if you really uh, really want to help me out which is just the best thing ever if you could rate and review this show That'd be the best. Um, wherever you can rate and review the show, please rate it. If you're on Spotify, follow the podcast. However else you listen, just subscribe and uh, rate and review the show. Those those things really, really, really help me. They help other people discover the show because people come and people go all the time. So it really helps me keep the download numbers at a solid level, which means that when I pitch guests or when guests pitch, you know, th- the caliber of guests that you get on this show get better the more you tell other people about the show. So it's good for you as well. Did you remember Mother's Day? Did you? I told you on Friday, I think a few people did, which is good. We went for a lovely walk in the park, which was really great. 
we are in a time, interesting time, where they're looking at taking the foot off the brake of some of these uh, social restrictions uh, during this um, lockdown. Bit of a bit of a communication breakdown, I guess, though, because there's all kinds of talk about, you know, you can only have so many people in your house, you can only have so many people in your inside building, unless you're a church and you can have more for some reason. But then when it comes to the supermarket, it's like, fucking, let's just go and push past each other in aisles. Wait a second. Like, airborne viruses just don't decide to wait outside at Coles. Like, come on, man. Like, think about it. And, and like, honestly, I know I speak about this a bit. It's not a personal choice. I personally feel it's a, it's a communication error on behalf of the people who are in charge of our communities. And I'm talking, you know, local, uh, state and federal uh, leaders. I'm not communicating important enough to as many people as possible in the most simplistic way as possible. Hey, we are going to try opening things again, but it's super important that you stay away from each other. You can't get close. Like social distancing, that's a made up word. Physical distancing, I can understand that. Everybody understands that. But you, you need to like always kind of lead with that. You know, you still have to keep apart from people and you're going to have to keep apart from people for a long time because this is what life is like now, all right? There is no when this gets better or when this is all over. Until there's a vaccine or something, there is no this is all over. This is it. This is what we've got. And that's fine. We're humans. We adapt. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to do what we did before and we might even figure out how to do it better. So just remember how you used to go to the shopping mall, how you used to shop for your groceries. We don't, that's not how we do it anymore. There's a new way that we do things now and that's what we do. How we used to push past people in the aisle, that's not how we do it anymore. We do it another way. We wait. We have to. And that's important. We all have to do it. And just because someone says, oh, next week the restrictions are over, doesn't mean that <laughs> the virus goes, and I'm done. Thank you very much for having me. No, you have to be really careful still. Anyway, to check in with you, how have you been? What have you been doing? Uh, have you been doing what you can where you are with what you have? Have you been looking after yourself? I've got to say, I had a um, a massive ego flare up this week, and it was a bit shit. It's a lifelong battle with my ego. I'm afraid. Um, I had to go hat in hand to someone close to me and and say a big sorry, and then deal with their rightful upset at my mistake. And my ego is like, look, I said sorry. All right, can you stop making me wrong for that thing that I can't fix again? Do we have to go over again how I've done a wrong thing? God, I can't undo it. Okay, I said sorry. Uh, and I had to say to my ego, come on, you got us into this mess. We have to sit with this. We have to let this person feel that they are done and they'll be done, but you're just going to have to sit here and be with it and learn your lesson, you fuckhead. And I did. I had to. I had to sit there. And, you know, a couple of days later it came around again. I was like, yep, yeah, fair enough. It's fair that you say that again because I've, I did that thing and it's fair that you say it. Fair. I learned the lesson. Uh, it's shit. It's shit that I'm still learning how to be a human and hurting people I care about. I'm nearly 50. Fuck. But I've been, uh, as you know, I've been diving back into the Stoics lately. I've been uh, kind of diving into that in the mornings and just kind of getting a bit of focus and getting a bit of uh, reflection as I do my writing in the morning. And um, there was a cracking one from Seneca yesterday. As long as you live, keep learning how to live. And it's, you know, it's great, great great. It's a great message and certainly one that gives us space to accept where we might be at fault and understand that, yes, there is probably always going to be a better way to get something done, even if it's a way that we've done something for a very long time, to know that 
we might be benefiting from a way of how things are done right now, and that might make us complacent. Oh, that's the way we've always done it. It's fine. It works fine. But it, do, it, it, it might make us think that this particular thing can never be improved upon or that, oh, no, no, I'm too old to change. I promise you, if you want to change, you will change, and you're never too old. You're never, never, never too old. And it also, you know, it's, it's got its applications in uh, how we live our lives on a bigger scale, on uh, the way we power our homes, the way we feed ourselves. As long as you live, keep learning how to live. There's, there's ways that we can live as a community. We can learn how to do them better. And um, we do get into that in that conversation with Dr. Richard Dennis today. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about another chat. Before we get to Dr. Richard Dennis today, in this conversation, we kind of dig into the reasons why people do and don't do things in the public eye for whatever reasons are, are behind those reasons. If you're fascinated by this kind of thing, may I recommend episode 282 of this show, a conversation I had with Jonathan Haidt, who's a tenured professor at NYU and author of why Do They Vote That Way? and The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a great conversation. We really dig in deep. Connecting people in general throughout history has generally been a good thing. The internet is generally a good thing. But I think specifically, if we just focus on social media specifically, I think decades from now, we'll look back and we'll see that it greatly damaged the mental health of a whole generation. It weakened democracies. And my prediction is that it'll make a few of them fail, like really fail. And the United States could well be one of them. So I think it's very difficult to maintain a stable democracy when you have active social media as we do now. Now, let me just be clear. In the long run, Steve Pinker is right, you know, for your listeners who have read Steve Pinker's books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. For all my pessimism, Steve Pinker is always pointing out that people have always been pessimistic about recent developments, yet things always get better and better. And he's probably right now, too. But for the next few years, I, I don't see how things get better. And I think some catastrophic failures are quite possible, much more possible than they seemed five years ago. You can find episode 282 of Better Than Yesterday, where you found this podcast. So let me tell you about my guest today. Dr. Richard Dennis is the Chief Economist and former Executive Director of the Australia Institute, a progressive Australian think tank, and a former Associate Professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. He has been described by journalist Mark Kenny in the Sydney Morning Herald as a constant thorn in the side of politicians on both sides due to his habit of skewering dodgy economic justifications for policy. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Richard Dennis co-wrote the book Affluenza, When Too Much Is Never Enough, and he also wrote the follow-up book Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World. He's bloody refreshing to speak to, as often people like you and I, we're excluded from conversations about economic policy by obtrusive language, complex acronyms, and, and deep ideological issues around what to actually do with taxpayer money. Well, as you're aware, in the midst of this pandemic, there is a lot of spending of taxpayer money right now, a lot, enormous amounts of it. And it's pretty excellent, and it's pretty scary all at once. And it's intense, and we all want to know what the hell is going to happen all at the same time. Now, every night, our leaders get on, our PM gets on, and our premiers get on. They get on the telly, and they, they give us their version of what's going to happen. And I've got to say, that version might be up for question. 
which is why I'm grateful to have a conversation about what's going to happen with someone who's got more skill and insight into this sort of thing than the Prime Minister himself. Democracy is all about holding our leaders accountable. And to do that, we need to know as many facts as possible and what possibilities there really are on the table that we may get to choose from. So in the interests of democracy and the interests of firing us up, I'm grateful to bring this conversation to the table so that in the next time that it comes for you to make a decision or make a choice in your community, in your local government, state government or federal government election, the next chance you get to take action or which charity you may want to support, what you decide what you're going to do with over the next year or two, hopefully you're a little bit better informed than you otherwise might be. Now, Richard is very active on Twitter. Uh, it's a fun thing to do to watch him on Twitter. It's interesting. He's at RDNS underscore TAI. RDNS underscore TAI. Great economic use of, of vowels there, Richard. <laughs> uh, it's a cracking conversation. We, we're linked up uh, over the interwebs. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Dennis. I'm really grateful to speak with you today. There's a lot to a lot to talk about, you know, and I guess for someone who spends their life figuring out where people's emotions, behaviors and bank accounts all meet, um, this is a really in ways a very exciting time for you. Oh, yeah, it's exciting in the hasn't happened before, you know, sense of anticipation, but it's pretty scary. Like the you know, I'm I'm 50. I endured the beginning of the 91 recession. You know, I was unemployed for 18 months. It was terrible. And pretty much no one's gone through that for nearly 30 years. And I, I don't get me wrong, it's wonderful the way we've acted to prevent the health crisis. But I, I don't think people quite have their head around what one and a half million unemployed people looks like. It's not one night of news on the Centrelink queue. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. There's no doubt it's interesting, but it's pretty scary. And this is kind of what I want to talk to you about and why I want to understand why an economist with a doctor in front of his name says I'm scared. Because if you have that emotion, then a lot of people are just kind of trying to get by with, you know, homeschooling their kids and they're, you know, they're trying to figure out they might be trying to re rebuild after a bushfire. There's a lot going on. Yeah. And to get a clear picture beyond ScoMo's daily address is probably important for all of us. So firstly, just let's just kind of cover off. You work at the Australia Institute. Now, there's been a, there's been a few institutes that have been getting their names in the news lately. Uh, can you give us an idea about what the Australian Institute is, please? Yeah. So the Australia Institute's been around for uh, nearly 25 years. We're a public policy think tank based in Canberra, entirely philanthropically funded. We do a lot of economic research, but we have quite a broad agenda. We do climate policy, uh, welfare reform, foreign policy, yeah, you name it. We've done research in recent times into loneliness, into trust in government. Yeah, it's quite a broad agenda. I used to be the executive director, but now I've got a much better job. I'm the chief economist. So. so when I hear think tank, I think of some fancy building with a, you know, with a with a great coffee machine. And let me just try and see if I can figure out what a think tank is, and see if you tell me if I'm on the money. You are working with people who provide policy solutions that 
folks who have been elected and find themselves now in power might not have had the time to think about or might be outside of their political leanings or might not be, you know, the, the policy stuff that you all come up with might have had a lot more of a lead time than, say, for example, someone who's just been voted into office after having been out for three years and now they're back and they may not have the, the legs on an issue. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'll give you my kind of personal sort of experience of it. I started out as an academic where I was free to be as irrelevant as I wanted to be. <laughs> I wound up being Natasha Stott the Spoyer's chief of staff when the Democrats were in balance of power. And I saw how interesting and important and how useful it is to get close to the legislative process where you have power to shape things, but almost no power to shape what those things are. You know, in Parliament, you're really... In, in especially in a minor party, you, you deal with the issues that get thrown at you, and you, you know, so you have power over them, but you don't get to pick them. The reason I love working at a think tank is I, from my point of view, get the best of both worlds. We can, we can sometimes set our own agenda and stick a flag in the ground and say this is a big issue, this is important, and everyone needs to catch up. And sometimes it's the opposite. It's politicians saying we're going to do this and, and you see an opportunity to either improve it or help them pass it or sometimes help them uh, help other people stop it. And with a complicated crossbench, you know, Australia's system of government's a bit more complicated than, than the media suggests. The fact that a prime minister says something will or won't happen doesn't mean it will or won't happen. There's a lot of parliamentarians you can talk to, even when the prime minister is implacably opposed. So, to help me understand, how can you be a non-partisan think tank? I mean, surely who you are as a person will come into play when you're putting policy together and how you feel about the world will come into play. What what underpins the work you do? Yeah, no, great question. And, and But partisan doesn't mean personal. Partisan means you barrack for one side. I mean, we're fiercely independent and my definition of independent is willing and able to have a fight with anybody. Well, we've had big disagreements with, with the Conservatives, with the Labor Party, with the Greens, with the crossbench. And we've had all of those different parties support or even pass legislation based on our ideas. So for me, partisan means barracking for a team. Uh, we barrack for ideas. And, you know, most people would describe us as being left of centre or progressive. That's fine. I, I don't, you know, that, they're not words I resile from. But We've worked with the Liberals to pass legislation. We've worked with the Greens to pass legislation. We've worked with Clive Palmer and Jackie Lambie to pass legislation. So, of course, I have my personal values and my personal priorities, as do all the staff of the Institute. But that doesn't make us partisan. And, you know, I think we, we as a society have really... I think we've lost the ability to have honest democratic debates where well-meaning people disagree with each other. It's okay to disagree with people. It doesn't mean you have to attack them and demean them and, and ridicule them and suggest they're idiots. What if we just said we disagree? Heaven forbid such a thing <laughs> could happen. Well, and that's why this national cabinet's so interesting at the moment. You know, the problems we face are so big that we've seen state premiers and a prime minister with different agendas and different political parties actually close the door and say, what are we going to do? And yeah. to some extent, you know, don't want to look for glimmers of hope in, in every crisis, but this crisis is so big, it's forced people to put some petty politics behind them. Frankly, we should always put petty politics behind us. Politics will never go. Politics is people sorting things out democratically, but 
when politicians are more interested in playing politics, in wedging their opponent, in spinning their nonsense and pretending it's truth, I mean, that's why people lose faith in politics. But we've recently done some surveys that show that Australians and people around the world have got more faith in government now than they did a year ago because people can see that in a time of crisis, we can't solve all problems individually. We need to solve them collectively. When you say you're willing to get into fight with anybody, what are you willing to get into a fight for? There's got to be something that stands at the core of all of the people that work with you. Oh, absolutely. So personally, you know, I think that we have an enormous obligation as people lucky enough to live in one of the richest countries in the world at the richest point in world history. I think that we have an obligation to future generations to protect them from the damage that we've already caused in the form of climate change. It's inconceivable to me whether you're a, a conservative or a progressive. Who who doesn't want to leave the planet in better shape for their kids and their grandkids? Like but in Australia, and Australia's pretty unique in the world, we're we're so determined to actually dig up new coal mines and open up new oil wells. Like we're doubling down on the thing that scientists tell us we shouldn't do. So climate change is very much at the heart of of my agenda. And I think, you know, everyone that works at the Australia Institute would agree with that. And personally, you know, again, we're, we're so rich. We're richer than we've ever been. We're, we're so rich that we celebrate the birth of Jesus by buying things and giving them to people that they'll throw away. You know, I mean, what, what, a, what a misreading of the Bible. I'm not particularly religious, but I take religion seriously. The idea that we celebrate the birth of Jesus by wasting money and wasting resources and burying it in the ground. And, you know, we're the first people in history to be so rich that we tell ourselves that the more stuff we waste, the richer we get. You know, we say Christmas is, quote, good for the economy. When as an economist, I think, how can throwing things out, how can buying people foot spas and hot dog makers and you know, exercise equipment that will never be used and then importing it and transporting it and burying it. In what economy does that make us wealthier? But that's how rich we are. So for me, you know, I think we can live happy, prosperous lives without destroying the environment uh, and without treating people terribly. So, but does everyone at the Australia Institute agree with everything I say? No, of course not. You know, we're a diverse, hopefully intelligent group of people, but we know how to sort out the disagreements we have. And, you know, I think that's that's what Parliament's supposed to do as well, is sort out differences, not, not pretend they're not there and not exaggerate them. Okay, so that that's kind of gives us a pretty good stance of, as to where you come from as we get into this conversation, because as far as a... You know, a non-partisan outcome. I'd like to think that no matter what part of the parliament you sit on, no, ma- no matter what Facebook groups you belong to as a punter, you like food, <laughs> you like water, and you like the security to know that you're always going to have that food and water when you need it. And, yep. you know, when you've got something like climate change absolutely threatening that, you know, you're probably going to want to listen to someone who's going to talk to you about the security of such things. I was just having this conversation upstairs with my wife because um, I've been doing a heap of podcasts since uh, we've been in lockdown and, and quite a number of them are, are climate change focused and I've struggled quite a bit in the past with climate anxiety. And yeah, I know I have to do my exposure therapy and I do have to stick into it, Richard, but at some point I can get overwhelmed. At some point my mm. you know, exposure can get too much. And I just had to have my wife kind of talk me down a bit today. And um, there's that point that as we're experiencing right now, Unfortunately, as human behavior is proven, 
We have to wait until the problem is immediate and personal before we understand or accept action. And that fucking sucks, man, mm. particularly mm. when it comes to climate change because there's this bit of selfishness about isolation. Yeah, I don't want to get my community sick. I don't want to get the old people in my street sick. I also don't want to get myself sick. Like that's, <laughs> that's a massive part of this and we are okay to admit that. Yet yeah. when it comes to, you know, sacrifices that we will all make because of climate change, uh, willingly or unwillingly, they're not personal and they're not immediate. And so it's a tough one. That's a real tough one. It is, but, you know, I'm, I'm accused of excessive optimism, but uh, I'm also usually accused of excessive cynicism, and I, I kind of wear both quite comfortably. I don't think we always have to wait till a problem's right in front of us. The You and I and the rest of the taxpayers in Australia are committed to spending $200,000 million, $200 billion to build 12 new submarines to replace the six we haven't used yet. So far-sighted are we that we are willing to spend more on that, more on that than any other purchase in Australian history, to fight a war against an enemy who might not exist at a point in the future that we're not certain of and at a time when we're not even sure that the technology we're building will even be useful. So when it comes to some problems, we have absolutely no problem taking an ounce of prevention instead of a pound of cure. And that's politics again. It's an act of politics. When it comes to defence, we think that prevention is better than cure. When it comes to climate change, we're told, strap in, it's going to be wild. And obviously with COVID-19, the Australian government has decided to listen to the science and err on the side of caution, a decision I wholeheartedly agree with. Obviously, Donald Trump has taken the exact opposite approach and Boris Johnson started down the denial approach and wound up too late in the science approach. So I understand why people get sort of frustrated and think, why don't politicians listen to science or why can't we make good long-run decisions? My answer doesn't make anyone happy because my answer is, well, sometimes we listen to science when we want to and sometimes we plan decades ahead when we want to. What politicians don't want to admit is that it's up to them to decide when they want to and when they don't. And we don't actually help ourselves saying if only they understood science, they'd tackle climate change. They understood science. That's why they just crushed the curve on COVID-19. They know how to plan ahead. That's why they spent $200 billion on subs we'll probably never use to go with the $20 billion worth of tanks we've never used. You know, we know how to do prevention, comma, when we want to. It's a political question. When do we want to? I love that answer, so don't worry. <laughs> I told you I'm cynical optimist. Mate, I love it. I love that answer, mate, I, I, and I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that you gave it. So when, like, not less than six months ago, we had our politicians talking about, I can't remember the exact line on childcare. It was like empathy we can't afford or something like that. Un, 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 unfunded empathy. Unfunded empathy. And here we are, not less than seven months later, suddenly out of the same mouth of the same politician comes, it's vital for the economy that we have childcare free for everyone. Yeah. You know, it's like I woke up one day, I was like, what sort of socialist paradise have I arrived in? What does it take for a politician who says one thing like that, not, not even a year ago, to suddenly go, oh shit, 
okay, yes, everyone gets free childcare. Uh, well, ultimately, you know, reality catches up to politicians, but they're pretty good. The best politicians are pretty good at kind of just skipping ahead of it so that the reality kind of never lands on them. You know, look at Trump. Like, you know, he's still pretending that everything's going swimmingly. It takes an enormous ego and a, a enormous arrogance, frankly, to kind of stare the country down and tell everybody that black is white. But that's the kind of person that it actually takes to run for president of the United States, indeed, prime minister of Australia. So how do they pivot like that? Well, firstly, they in this instance, they, they just have to. But the size and scale of the problem coming at them, you can't spin your way out of a pandemic. So I think the interesting thing for citizens watching this, it's like, you know, when you watch a magician do a trick slowly, you can figure out what they did. So if we watch really carefully what politicians have done, we can really understand something very important. When the Prime Minister was telling us a year ago that we, quote, couldn't afford to increase unemployment benefits, it was unfunded empathy, you just have to rerun the clock and, and substitute for the words couldn't afford with don't want to. It's just as simple as that. A year ago, the Prime Minister faced with a choice between spending money on increasing unemployment benefits or spending money on tax cuts, wanted to spend the money on tax cuts. Now, rather than say to the public, I'd like to help this group and I don't want to help that group, you know, like me or hate me, that's the choice I've made. Good politicians actually conceal how powerful they are. They conceal the choices they have. They say, I have no choice. I have no choice at all. I, I have to cut taxes. I have to. If I cut taxes, it might look like I'm helping my preferred group of friends at the moment, but that's not it at all. That'll help grow the economy and then we'll be big and rich and then I'll be able to help the poor. It's not that I've made a choice here, it's that I have no choice. Once we understand that, that we're actually electing people to make those choices for us, we just need to hold them accountable for it. My kids could nag me and say, Dad, take me to Disneyland and I can engage with them on why that seems like a crap idea to me. Or I could just lie to them and say, can't afford to. Truth is, I could afford to take them to Disneyland, but why have that debate? Why not just lie? <laughs> How old are they? How old are your kids? 12 and 9. Oh, man, you got to go before they – we went when G was 10. And yeah. she was just, just like that was the last three weeks of her life that she was young enough to enjoy it. Uh, well, look, you know, you can lobby for them, but I'm going to be a politician <laughs> here, you know. I've got power. I'm going to use it. And, pretty good. You know, my household isn't a democracy. I'm yeah. not elected dad. I'm authoritarian. <laughs> I've appointed myself dad. But when our prime minister tells us we can't afford something, yeah. literally what that means is I don't want to do it. And the clearest proof that I can't afford to translates to I don't want to is they just spent $200 billion dollars in the last two months that they weren't planning to spend. If you can afford to spend $200 billion this year, obviously they could have afforded to spend a billion dollars or $2 billion on helping the poorest Australians last year. They didn't spend it because they didn't want to, but rather than take responsibility for their choices, they use economics, they mm. use economists to hide their choices. Right. So that spending is... Uh, 
never happened before in Australian history. No. You know, we had some very, very clever policy that came into play 10, 11 years ago uh, during the GFC, which meant Australians never really noticed that the rest of the world went down the toilet economically. I was living overseas at the time and I'd come back here and, yeah, I just got another TV for the other room. It's, well, the other one wasn't quite big enough. That's in the toilet, uh, you know. <laughs> And that, that's the conversations people were having because the mining boom was booming and people, everyone had a platinum frequent flyer card and it was just on for young and old. And there was some very clever work that happened here to make that so Australians didn't notice. But this spending just dwarfs that, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So to put it into context, each year the federal government announces its budget, basically spells out what it's going to spend money on, how much money it's going to spend and how much revenue it expects to collect. In last year's budget, the total budgeted spending for the 12 months was $500 billion. $500 billion, that's everything. All of health, all of education, all of defence, all of the grants to the states, everything, $500 billion. In the first two months of this year, the government announced an extra $200 billion, a 40% increase in total spending in two months. And and just to be clear, we haven't heard the last of the new announcements. That's the down payment on, on the size of the fiscal stimulus that we're going to see. So depending on how you cut it over the course of the global financial crisis, over a sort of 18-month period, Labor probably spent around $100 billion trying to stimulate the economy. Yeah, we dropped $200 billion in six weeks. And again, that's just the beginning of the game. We, we haven't really run onto the park yet. So give us an idea. I mean, we're, we've all been told to, you know, sit and wait and hold on, stay close, wash your hands, don't touch your face. We're going to try these restrictions, download the app, we're not following it. Uh, we've been told a lot of things. <laughs> Incidentally, have you downloaded the app? I have, I have. You're okay with it? Look, I, again, cynical optimist. Uh, Apple and Facebook know more about me and my movements and my patterns and, and Google than the government do. And if the government really wanted to know what I was doing, it would already know. So, you know, privacy is an illusion. Uh, that doesn't cheer me up. I actually think we should care about our privacy. But the, the amount of information that I'm giving away in the app is trivial compared to the amount of information that I give away voluntarily or unknowingly to other groups. And the scale of this is is bigger than people, I think, can really comprehend. And I do think that if Australia gets good at keeping the rate of community transmission very, very low, we're going to have happier and healthier lives. So I do care about privacy. I'd rather have it than not. What they're asking me for is pretty small. And also forget the app. If, if you have coronavirus and the health department comes and knocks on your door, if you don't cooperate, they can force you to do all sorts of things, whether or not you've got the app. We've given enormous powers to our state and federal governments to act during a pandemic. You've already lost a lot of rights that perhaps you don't know about. Again, in the scheme of that, the app is small beer. So no, I've downloaded it. I think it will. I think it will help. I, I fear governments abusing my privacy, but I fear the economic and health consequences of, of coronavirus far more. Mate, I appreciate it. That's a freaking good answer. Um, so we're being told a lot of things and that hold on, sit tight, stay in your homes, watch all the Netflix. We'll be back business as usual before you know it. Mm. I 
don't th- I don't know much about economics, but I've got a fair idea that there is no business as usual, and what we had is never coming back. Would that be right? Yes. Uh, no one knows what's going to happen. People have heard about recessions, have heard about booms. Usually you have a boom before you have a recession. So you've been having a good time, people's incomes are high, unemployment's low, and then we kind of get to the top of the roller coaster and go off. And, you know, that's not fun when you go off the edge, but you're coming off a high. Australia's never gone into a recession in as bad a shape as we were in. We had low economic growth, low wages growth, low productivity growth. Everything was actually going pretty badly. And then coronavirus came along and just stomped on us. So we literally went from bad to worse. We're on our way to worse. We haven't got there yet. And again, think about what happens in a normal recession. In a normal recession, governments do everything they can to create economic activity. What are we doing at the moment? We've, through government policy, policy I agree with, we've shut down entertainment. We've shut down retail. We've shut down tourism. We've shut down universities. Like Usually when the economy starts to slow a bit, governments do everything they can to push it back up. Here, it's the government that's actually, as a, and I agree with it, as, a, as an act of public health policy, it's the government that's crushing our economy deeper than any recession. The 1991 recession, the last one we had in Australia, GDP, gross domestic product, total amount of stuff we make, fell 2%. The Reserve Bank's telling us that we're looking to see GDP shrink 10%. That's five times bigger than the 1991 recession. There's a lot to be scared of. The 91 recession was terrible. If the 91 recession was a wave hitting us, well, this one's five times bigger. It's, it's a tsunami. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what does that look like? What does a 10% dip in GDP look like for the average punter? Look, it's a terrible thing. <laughs> Sorry to reject the premise of your question. There, there's no average. Yeah, uh, you that's know, fine. The average Australian has less than two legs, right? The number of two-legged people is a lot bigger than the number of one-legged people, but the average Australian doesn't have two legs. they got 1.99 legs. There is no average okay. Australian. Yeah. What's going to happen in this recession is that 10 or 20% of people are going to lose all of their income. Now, I might lose none. You might lose none. But 10 or 20% of us are going to lose all of it. So I think we have to be very careful sort of thinking, what does it mean for the average Australian? Because a lot of us are going to be absolutely fine. 
a lot of us are going to be lucky enough to work for an employer in an industry that doesn't get hit. Like, no nurses are going to get sacked in the next 12 months. None. You know, we need them. We're going to be employing nurses. All right, but people who've spent their life building a small business, you know, in the arts industry, in the entertainment industry, they're going to lose everything. So, you know, I I don't mean to reject the premise of your question. I know what you mean. What's it mean for the average Australian? Yeah. It's it's worse than that. There's this horrible lottery that's about to play out, and millions of Australians are going to see their income fall from 40, 50, 60, 80, 100,000 bucks a year to the unemployment benefit of $14,000, and then they're going to have to pay rent out of their 300 bucks a week. It's going to be horrible for them, and a lot of us will be fine. So as a community, we really have to keep – we have to ask ourselves, are we going to keep blaming the unemployed? Because that's what we've done for decades. We've sort of said, oh, well, if people don't have a job, they mustn't be looking hard enough, so it's okay to make them live on poverty wages. Well, you know, when the car industry shut down and 50,000 people lost their jobs, it wasn't their fault the car industry shut down. When the textile industry shut down and tens of thousands of people lost their jobs, you know, sewing in factories, it wasn't their fault. But as a society, we were pretty contemptuous of them. Well, you know, maybe a million people are about to lose their jobs. And it's entirely up to us as a community whether we're going to say, oh, well, they mustn't have worked hard enough or they mustn't have looked hard enough for a job or, you know, some sort of victim blaming. Or we can say, wow, there, but for the grace of God, go I. What a terrible situation for anyone to be in. How do we look after other people? A, because it's nice, and B, because in a month's time it might be me. Yes, I'm on board. So <laughs> that's a lot of people without a gig. And, and you specifically target, you know, talk about the entertainment industry. And I, when this all first started happening, I was speaking with a mate of mine who's a DJ. And we, between the two of us, we did a bit of a, a rough sum. It was about three hundred to five hundred thousand people work in the live entertainment industry in Australia. That's conferences and all sorts of things. Like that's a lot of people with a very specific skill set. They've spent their entire career working on. I made the joke that it's it's all well and good for a politician to stand in a Kerber in front of a dry field with a farmer. We can understand that, but a politician standing in front of a bunch of blokes in their mid forties with long shorts and mag lights and AAA passes <laughs> around their necks doesn't quite cut it. But these are people who have since they were seventeen. I used to be a roadie. I know it. Since I was 17, they've figured out how to be the best lighting tech that there possibly is. So when your favorite band comes and plays the entertainment center, you go far out. But that person won't be working for a long time. And that's hard. What's that person going to do? What does life look like for these these unemployed people? Are they going to have to, do you think it'll be, here's the new start, the all new new start, I should say. Here's the all new new start. Good luck. We'll see you when the economy comes back. Or do you think it'll be something else? Well, that's up to us, you know, and this is this is a really important part of this. It's up to us. We can't talk about the economy as if it's this sort of natural force that kind of comes and does stuff to us, like the weather. How we decide to help our unemployed is entirely up to us. Do we copy what they do in Sweden and Denmark and Norway? Do we take the unemployed and give them free training of their choice to help them find the new career they want to do? You know, do we ensure that they've got enough money to not just pay the rent but participate fully in society while they're getting retrained? Do we want to be like that or do we want to go the kind of American food stamps approach? Because America is a rich country and Norway is a rich country 
and they treat their unemployed people yeah. entirely different. And we in Australia have agency. We, we have choices. And I, I hope that this crisis leads us to reflect on some of those choices because I hope we don't just treat the unemployed well now. Uh, I wish we treated them well when they lost their job when the car industry left. And I hope we treat the next lot of unemployed well in a couple of years' time for whatever reason they lose their jobs. So, yeah, I think we really have to, A, remember we've got choices here, but B, you know, we talk about the entertainment industry. Uh, you're right, there's, I'd, I'd say, around 500,000 people broadly work in entertainment and the arts. To put that into perspective, there's about 50,000 people work in coal mining in Australia. <laughs> so 10 times more people work in entertainment and the arts. But everyone in Australia has heard dozens, if not thousands of times, that it's the coal mines that create all the jobs. Less than 1% of Australians work in coal mining. 99% of us don't work in coal mining. But these kind of misperceptions really harm us when we hit a crisis like this because when the crisis first hit, I, I rang a friend who, who runs a decent-sized, pretty successful entertainment business. I said, oh, man, how are you doing? He said, well, put it this way, Richard, I'm in the business of running non-essential events for more than 500 people. <laughs> You know, the entertainment industry was literally the first hit. The entertainment industry will probably be the last part of the economy to be kind of free to go back into business. Yet, to date, the choices the government's made in its decisions on how to treat casuals, I think is terribly unfair, particularly for young people working as casuals in the entertainment industry. I, there's time for the government to change their mind. I suspect they will. But, yeah, the, the first people to take it were the entertainment industry. And we don't, as Australians, understand what a big employer that is. It's colossal, and 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 as, as I guess you know, there's so many things we could go into as far as how much we as a nation rely on the labour of people who have come to this country quite recently, who we expect to pay tax but may not be able to participate fully in all that our nation has to offer as far as the benefits of paying that tax. I'll, I'll say, it's a tricky pickle that we've we've got ourselves into. What do you think is the opportunity here. You say that, like, at this point, we're still, yeah, we're on the roller coaster. We're still doing loops right now where there's no way, we're not even close to realizing, oh shit, I guess we're on this roller coaster for a while. We're still on the first upside down part at this <laughs> point. We're still like, ah, into the air, like, what the fuck's going to happen, right? What are our opportunities here? Because, you know, with every crisis comes an opportunity to go, well, hang on a second, this is broken. How can we rebuild it? How can we maybe rebuild it better? What are our opportunities here when it comes to, say, for example, how we treat the unemployed? What are our opportunities there? Uh, look, we've got well. A, we can just be more generous to them, to the unemployed, and B, we can be more generous to a broader range of people. The current government policy is pretty harsh for a lot of casuals and very harsh for a lot of people working in Australia on temporary visas. So, does the actual, you know, how do we treat the unemployed themselves? I think the short answer there is hopefully more generously. But the the really big question is: so, what do we as a society do? not just to kind of be nice to unemployed people, but what do we do with the fact that we're going to have one and a half million people who can't find work in the private sector? Now, economists kind of know the answer to this, just some people don't like it. Back in the Great Depression, we had mass unemployment and the Great Depression lasted for so long because in the early years, governments kind of just, you know, blamed the unemployed and gave them some food stamps and let them queue up for soup and, and kind of just hoped that everything would get better. 
But things didn't get better. We made things better. My favourite example of this is, you know, the east coast of New South Wales and Victoria. It's dotted with beautiful Art Deco ocean baths. Now, there's a hint there, Art Deco. When do you reckon they were built? In the 30s. Why were they built in the 30s? Because we had mass unemployment and state governments went and actually created jobs. We talk about creating jobs all the time. It's, it's actually quite literal. We need to employ people to do useful things. If the private sector can't create enough jobs for people to do useful things, the public sector can and should step in. No one suggests that public sector teachers and public sector nurses don't do important work. It's central to our economy. Well, back in the 1930s, state and federal governments, mainly state governments, figured out the only way we were going to get out of the Depression was to spend money creating jobs to pay people to do useful things. And 100 years, nearly 100 years after those ocean baths stopped creating jobs, they're still creating joy. Like we actually today have better lives because 100 years ago, people built really good, useful stuff for their community. The Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Great Ocean Road, right? These projects were built in the 30s, literally to soak up hundreds of thousands of people who couldn't find work in the private sector. So if, and it's a giant if, if we want to not just be nice to unemployed people, but actually help ourselves and help those people and help future generations, we need to spend the next couple of years, and it will take that long, we need to spend the next couple of years literally creating jobs that in the short term pump income and activity into the economy, and in the long term leave lasting benefits. And at the moment, you know, the government's not there yet. They're still talking about a snapback and they're talking about temporary and targeted policies. Well, credit where credit's due. They've uh, Two months ago, they were worried about a budget surplus. Today, they've blown $200 billion on the first instalment. They haven't quite figured out what the next six months and even three years are going to look like. But if we're serious about creating a lot of jobs, if we're serious about helping not just the economy but society going forward, then we need to have mass employment creation. And not everyone's going to get a job with a shovel building stuff. Let's think creatively. There's a whole bunch of unemployed scuba divers on the Great Barrier Reef today. There's no tourists up there. We should be paying them to go kill all the crown of thorn starfish that have been eating our reef for years. It's a great time to fix that problem. Every public building in Australia needs a, a spruce of paint and some new carpet. Every stinking public toilet block in Australia that we've just ignored for decades should just be bulldozed and build a new one. The National Archives would love it if people would sit at home and help electronically categorise and scan millions of old newspapers and books that are going to literally fall to pieces and be lost to us forever if we don't digitise them soon. We need to think big about what are the projects that we could do today that would create jobs today, provide income today, and deliver lasting benefits for decades or centuries. We know how to do it. We just haven't got there yet. Is there any room for tying in the greatest threat against all of us, which is climate change? Is there any room for tying in some action against climate change in this country with this employment sort of uh, initiative you're talking about? 
Oh, absolutely. What what a Dorothy Dixer for me. Um, <laughs> of, of all the things that we should be doing at the moment, it is preparing ourselves for the energy transition that we are going to go through in the next 10 or 20 years. So we're going to do it. We know it's going to happen. If we start doing a lot more of that right now at a time where there's literally unemployed labour and the cheapest debt funding you could ever get, there is no better time to mass install solar and, and wind projects and, and roll out batteries. There's also no better time to improve the energy efficiency of our homes, our offices, you name it. There's, there's no better time to start rolling those things out because they'll, A, create jobs in the short term, and B, create lasting benefits for decades. And again, until governments start to think creatively, not just did I spend a lot of money, but what did I spend it on? Mm. Until they start doing that, we're, we're going to miss a lot of opportunities. You say they're not there yet. I'm sure there's a few things that needed to happen at the start of this pandemic that we weren't there yet. But then there was a couple of trigger points that either ScoMo or Frydenberg went, oh, hang on a second. And then the next day they went on the news and said, all right, here's what we're doing now. What would need to happen for them to get there? Uh, look, I mean, credit where credit's due. If I, if I said to you last year that Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison would soon be handing down the biggest deficit in Australian history and they'd be telling us all, don't worry about it, it's good for you, you'd think we were off in a parallel universe. You know, it's like a bad episode of Black Mirror or something. Is there a good episode of Black Mirror? They're all <laughs> fucking horrible. Every one of them, you go, yep, yeah, actually, yeah. most of that's happening right now. Shit. Yeah, yeah. life's, life's going to be worse than I thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> No, exactly. So we couldn't have imagined it. Uh, again, you know, I don't agree with everything these people do. I think their heart's in the right place. They believe the things they were saying a year or two, most of the big ones at least. And they genuinely believe that the role of government is to get out of the way and let the private sector, you know, do its thing. And don't get me wrong, I, I like markets. I'm an economist. I'd much rather live in a in a market economy like Australia than in North Korea. I don't know many people that would disagree with that. But in all countries, whether it's Singapore or the US or the other end of the spectrum, Norway and Sweden, all countries rely on governments to do a whole bunch of things and politicians get elected kind of saying, oh, I think government could do a little bit more. I think government could do a little bit less. These people have spent their whole political life saying it's the job of government to get out of the way, and if only we cut taxes enough, individuals will get out there and innovate and blah, blah, blah. Never in their life did they think they would be in charge when they shut down 20% of the economy. Yeah, They did that, and it was right. It was the right thing to do. So they've spent years saying we need to deregulate to let the economy grow, and they're the ones that regulated to shrink it by 20%. I don't mean to patronise them, they're busy, they've got a lot on their plate. They haven't turned their mind yet to what their responsibility is yeah. to clean up the mess that they rightly made. They did the right thing in shutting the economy down. I couldn't think of anything worse than letting Australia look like New York. But they're the ones that stomped on the economy and it's not going to snap back as under its own force. It's not going to thaw gently out of hibernation. As the nation's leaders, they're going to have to drag the economy through the mud yeah. and give it CPR 
and it's going to be expensive and hard. And, and in their whole political careers, they never imagined that they'd do anything like it. So, yeah, they're not there yet, but they will be. But surely you, you mentioned the the ocean baths that are in New South Wales and, and the Great Ocean Road. These, there's a plaque with people's names on it at those places. <laughs> surely this is an opportunity for these people to create a legacy. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and they will, you know, I I don't mean to sound flippant. It's just inevitable. There's only one way out of this and it's for them to get around to doing that. And, and if they want to be successful politicians, and I don't doubt for a minute they do, they're going to need to be seen to be solving these problems and, and they will, I think, step up. But the sooner they get there, the less time we waste, the less money we waste, the less opportunities we waste. And, yeah, of course, they'll stick their name on some windmills and they'll name some halls after themselves and so be it. But that said, we we do have to have an important democratic conversation, not just about the size of the economy, but the shape of the economy. What do we want to have more of and what do we want to have less of? And this comes back to issues like, well, why wouldn't you spend a lot of time and money now building renewable energy? Uh, The short answer is because some people don't want to. You know, they've actually spent years saying, I don't want to. And guess what? In the middle of a crisis, they still don't want to. Now, personally, wearing my citizen's hat and professionally wearing my economist's hat, I'd say, come off it of all the things to spend public money on right now, you couldn't get a better payback than doing a whole bunch of climate change policy now. It'll create jobs in the short term and lower emissions in the long run. But there'll be plenty of politicians saying, no, that's nonsense. You know, we need to go build another dam. We need to go and pour a lot of concrete in the middle of my electorate. And it's politics. It's democracy. We need to have a conversation. But the government will step in eventually. The government will spend a lot of money on big projects and small projects all around the country the, the democratic question is, which ones, which projects? Yeah. And the reason we enjoy those ocean baths today is people made good decisions 100 years ago. I agree with you in that I personally, I don't align with the politics of the people that are in power at the moment. And that doesn't mean that I can't also be grateful that they have taken such a stance. I can't be grateful that some of the policies they've brought under, I am very grateful for. I don't believe that because this person is of this particular party, therefore absolutely everything they say and do, I have to vehemently disagree with. I I don't feel that way. But I do kind of get the sense that similarly in the way that I personally feel this, I don't know if you agree or not. I personally feel, Richard, that it was only a conservative government that could have taken the guns off the streets after Port Arthur. I highly Mm. doubt that a centrist or left-leaning government could have taken the guns out of people's hands. It had to be someone of their own saying, no, we have to do this and we have to do this now. That incredible footage of Howard just begging the national space, we have to do this now. I kind of get the feeling that our very best chance at this kind of climate policy, massive public works is when a conservative government's in power? Maybe. I mean, you know, we we introduced a carbon price back in 2010. It worked. It didn't ruin the economy. And if Kevin Rudd hadn't destabilised Julia Gillard so much, perhaps Tony Abbott wouldn't have won the election and perhaps we'd have a functioning carbon price. But that's fantasy football. <laughs> none, of, <laughs> none of that happened. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my point is, you know, Labor did introduce a successful climate policy And it was working and it was pulled down by an act of politics that if it had have lasted another year or two, I think it would have been uncontroversial. 
that's it. I accept what you say. I think that if Labor had tried to take guns off the national sort of voters, it never would have happened. And similarly, back in the 80s, it was, it was of course, Labor that, that sort of did so much to remove trade protections behind, you know, which the Australian manufacturing industry had been protected for years. If it had been the Liberals trying to remove some of those protections for manufacturing, uh, I don't think the manufacturing unions would have gone along with it. So, there's a long history and it sort of makes sense if you think about it. It's kind of easier for a party to put the hard word on their own base yeah. sometimes than it is yeah. on the people they wish would vote for them. So, yeah, I, I don't think only the coalition can tackle climate change, but uh, I think there are huge benefits to them trying mm. because if the coalition would listen to the climate scientists in the way that it's listening to the medical scientists, <laughs> it's not a big step for it to start taking simple measures. It's the same graph, there's the same curve, <laughs> there's, the, there's the same capacity. Fucking hell, all right? It's yep. the same thing, guys. Come on. We're yeah. looking at a lot of spending, man. We're looking at a, a shitload of spending. We've both got kids who... When I first saw the amount of spending, I'm like, holy shit, my eldest, she'll be in the job market, hopefully, if there's a job market to speak of, she'll be in the job market within two years. Are these the sort of things that she will be paying taxes for until she's mid-40s like me? Is it like Wolfie's just got born? Is this the sort of thing that Wolfie's still going to be paying taxes for in 20 years from now? Well, your your kids will be paying taxes in the future for a lot of things and a small amount of their tax will go to repaying some debt or paying interest on the debt. But we've got to put these things into perspective. I mean, where to start? Anyone who's bought a house in Australia has incurred enormous amounts of debt. Not many people buying a house think it's reckless and irresponsible to borrow money to buy a house. Most people think borrowing money to buy a house is actually a good idea where over the course of their life, they'll save more in rent and they'll have an asset at the end of it that's worth a lot more. Your kids, when they get to uni, will say to them, hey, uni is such a good idea. You're going to borrow 100 grand to go to it. How good is that? Welcome to debt. You guys are going to go into debt before you even go into your house debt. We, the nation state, think your education is so important, we're going to give you some education debt before you get to your house debt. So when we evaluate public sector debt, let's do so through the prism of how do we as a community feel about debt. We love debt. We love to borrow money. And it's actually, as an economist, it's a, it's a good idea for people to borrow money to invest in things that will deliver lasting benefits. There's a big difference between borrowing 20 grand on your credit card to go on a holiday and borrowing 20 grand to go to uni. There's a big difference between the Australian government borrowing a couple of hundred billion dollars on our behalf to create jobs in the short term and deliver infrastructure that we'll use for decades to come. That's quite different from borrowing that money and spending it on fireworks on Christmas Eve. No, but what we spend the money on matters far more than did we borrow it or not. And the story that we've come to tell ourselves in Australia is that the sort of ultimate sign of economic success is to, quote, pay down the debt, you know, to be debt free. There's no economics behind that objective. Most people want to repay their debt on their house before they retire. Fair enough. While their income's high, they want to pay off their debt. So 
when when's Australia planning to retire? What's the date we think we have to have our debt paid off for? If we're building schools and roads and hospitals and ocean baths and, and solar panels and windmills that will last for 30 or 50 or 100 years, why should we pay cash for them today? Why should, why should our generation, you and I, why should we pay so much tax today that we pay for all of the infrastructure that will last people for 50 years to come? So I know that's a long answer, but debt isn't bad and debt isn't good. Debt is just debt. What we do with it is potentially good or bad, and that's the democratic conversation we have to have. So if Australia spent the next couple of years borrowing huge amounts of money to invest in things that will deliver assets that will give us benefits for decades to come, that'll be a bargain. And if we don't do that, we will just wind up with high unemployment and we'll be broke in three years' time and we won't have the good assets. That's a great answer, and I appreciate. It. I guess you know, I've I'm one who's just you know heard the spin, and I've heard that I don't look at it through your eye. I don't look at it through an economist's eye. I don't look at it through the eye of someone who's up close and personal with politics. I believe it when a politician says this amount of debt is not okay, and so then I feel oh, this amount of debt's not okay because <laughs> yeah. I believe in this particular politician, whatever color tie they wear. When it does come to putting things back together, we did talk a little bit about how it might look. This disease. SARS-CoV-2, which has caused the COVID-19 illness, which is incredibly dangerous for everybody, not just old people. It's a terrible communicate. There's the one big victim of this whole situation has been the the ability to communicate effectively with the public. In the words of Briggs, the great Australian rapper, 10,000 people didn't go to Bondi Beach out of spite. They went to Bondi Beach because it wasn't communicated to them effectively enough <laughs> why it's really fucking important that you don't go. All right. People are smart and people will listen when they explain something cleverly in a clear, succinct way. This disease has exposed a lot of things that we are vulnerable to. Many, many, many things we're vulnerable to. Classic example in America, you can't get a cotton tip in America that isn't made in China. You know, like a tickle stick, the kind of thing you clean your ear with, even though you're not supposed to clean your ear with it. They don't make them in America anymore. They make them in China. So this idea of this, I I need this thing to get in a container, to get on a ship, to get to a port, to get in a truck, to get to it. Like it's exposed these humongous vulnerabilities in our supply chains of what we rely on day to day. So going forward, I want to talk about consumerism first, then I want to talk about how we employ people and what we would expect out of employment later on. But firstly, when it comes to consumption, you mentioned it's Christmas. I'm going to buy you something that you, in a year from now will end up in a council cleanup bin. Fucking happy birthday, Jesus. It's the way to show him we really care. It makes utterly no sense. And I, and I really appreciate it. When it does come to this culture of consumerism and this culture of I need to fill a gap in my happiness by buying something, what do you think will change there for us? Hopefully a lot, but maybe not as much or as quick as I'd like. little history lesson, in in the 7,000 years of recorded history, it's really only in the last 30 that the idea that we should buy things and then chuck them out and replace them that took off. It's it's actually a new idea. 
to sort of think of disposable consumption in the way we do. I'm 50. When I was growing up, that wasn't the done thing. When I was growing up, no one thought they needed a $10 a litre bottle of water to have a drink of water. No one bought a tool and used it once and then couldn't be bothered cleaning it. So they went to Bunnings to buy another one six months or a year's time. Like that's like if you said that to people 30 years ago, they'd think you were crazy. So it's a new idea that we live like this. And it's important that we recognize it's a new idea because if it's a new idea, it doesn't mean it's inevitable. You know, there's seven, eight billion people on the earth and most of them don't think or act like this. And we didn't used to think or act like this. So obviously we don't always have to keep acting like this. It's it's a culture that we've created and we've told ourselves some weird stories to sustain this culture. We we actually tell ourselves that ripping out a perfectly good kitchen and replacing it with a slightly different coloured one is, quote, good for the economy. Right? So we actually turn it into a gift. You know, I'm not destroying something. I'm not wasting something. I'm not doing conspicuous consumption. I'm, I'm creating jobs. Yeah. I mean, this is crazy, but it's new crazy, and it's not actually that common crazy. So... Will coronavirus help to shake us out of some of this stuff? I hope so. And the way that I try to get people to think about this is, and I used to do this myself, we often use the words consumerism and materialism interchangeably. But I actually, uh, I think they mean the exact opposite. For me, consumerism is the love of buying things, the thrill of the new, right? Going to the shop, and buying the new shirt or buying the new shoes or buying the new car, whatever it is, it, you know, there's no doubt a lot of people get a lot of thrill out of that, they get a lot of satisfaction out of that, and very briefly, very briefly, they might even get a little bit of status out of that. But it doesn't last, so you've got to go back and buy more and more and more. Materialism is the opposite of consumerism. Materialism is about the love of the thing, not the love of buying the thing, the thing itself. And if you love something, if you love your car, if you love your shoes, if you love your glasses, if you love an object, then you wouldn't dispose of it lightly on a whim. To love something means to care for it and cherish it and repair it and maintain it and possibly even when you don't need it anymore, find a new home for it. So imagine you had a puppy Right, a beautiful little puppy and you're so happy with your puppy and you love your puppy. And then you, for whatever reason, you know, you had to move overseas or your life changed. What would you, if you actually loved your dog, would you just chuck it out? Or would you put effort into finding a new home for it? Well, drive through Sydney these days and look what people do when they're tired of their furniture. They stick it out on the street and they kind of tell themselves that if someone else wants it, then they'll pick it up. And if it gets rained on and ruined, well, I guess no one else wanted it. And, you know, in the bin it goes, and off we go to Ikea. That's not love. That's not loving your things. That's hating your things. So, yeah, I actually think that we need to love our things. We need to cherish our things. We need to repair them and maintain them. And when we don't need them anymore, put some effort into finding them a new home. And when we're told that we're kind of hardwired to love new things and chuck things out, just think about that puppy again. 
you know, if you had a puppy for six months and a new cuter puppy came along, what kind of person would chuck out the puppy to get a new one? That's not love, you know. So, yeah, I actually think we need to really rethink things. And I, I love some things. I, I don't care about most things, but I love my stuff. And I'll, I'll, according to some people I care about, hang on to it for a bit too long. But that's the kind of way I am. And that's the way that most humans have been for 7,000 years of recorded history. The idea, let's just chuck it out and get a new one. That's the new idea. That's the crazy idea. That's the radical idea. That doesn't really go hand in hand with opening retail and, and, and driving those sectors and driving that, F, what is it, FCMG, fast Fast-moving consumer goods. FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods. You know, it's it doesn't really sit in line with that as far as stimulating economies go, does it? Well, that's okay, but we've got to be really careful when thinking about what we mean. So, by the way, at the end of this crisis, we're not going to have the same economy we had on the way in. The economy is permanently changing. Ten years ago, all right, let's go 15 years ago, no one had heard of a smartphone. There was no smartphones. No one had ever heard of one. 20 years ago, no one had the internet at home. You know, once upon a time, we watched movies, we recorded them at home on our, our VCRs. And 20 years ago, and I mean this quite literally, 20 years ago, almost no one in Australia went out and paid for coffee. Right? 20 years ago, we were drinking Nescafe, you know, maybe maybe Macona if we were fancy. The world has changed radically in the last 20 years. The world will change radically in the next 20 years. The direction that it changes in is up to us. The shape of the economy we build is up to us. And look, I have sympathy for people who are in the fast-moving consumer goods business, but I had sympathy for people who were in photo development lab businesses. I had sympathy for people who were in the video cassette business. I had sympathy for people who did all sorts of things that we don't do anymore. So, We've been trained to believe that ripping out new kitchens and replacing them is good for the economy. We've been trained to believe that buying more pants than we could possibly ever wear is good for the economy. But the economy doesn't want you to waste money on pants. Imagine if instead of buying a foot spa for your relatives at Christmas or a book that they won't read or a shirt that they hate, Imagine if instead of doing that, you bought them a massage voucher or piano lessons or French lessons or personal training experience or the idea that we have to buy stuff, physical stuff with resources and energy embedded in it that we don't need and that to do that is, quote, good for the economy is nonsense. It's good for the part of the economy that sells crap we don't need. And if we, just as we decided we were going to spend a lot of money on coffee, and that led to enormous employment in the cafe industry, well, if we stopped buying crap that we don't use and started spending money on, on human services, then the crap selling part of the economy would shrink the massage and personal training and violin lesson part of the economy would grow, the economy doesn't care. There's no such thing as the economy. It's just the sum of all those parts. And every time we blow 100 bucks on something, we're kind of voting for what shape we want the economy to be. The size will be about the same. It's the shape we control.
It's extraordinary what you described there as the two alternatives or the two options you could take there. You talked about the energy embedded in the thing. Like, what can I hold up? My water bottle that I adore. This is the longest water bottle I've had. I haven't, I, Excellent. I, I haven't been flying a lot, so I haven't been leaving it on a plane. I've got so many of these damn things on planes. But when I think about... The energy that's gone into mining the ore, the energy to smelt the metal, the the transport that brought it to Hawaii where I bought it and then brought it back with me. You mentioned the energy embedded in this thing. It's colossal. And the carbon carbon footprint embedded in this thing that I hold in my hand is, is colossal. To then hold it in my hand and go, hey, thanks, Merry Christmas, put it on a shelf, 18 months later, in a bin. You know, that is an absolute crime. But on the other hand, you're talking about purchasing things that are experiential, that bring value and ongoing input to someone's experience of life. And and all the things you mentioned involve you connecting with another human being. I don't know if you meant to do that, but I kind of like that because if there's one thing that we're all missing right now and valuing greatly, it is in connecting with other human beings. We were so, we self-isolated before this shit started in our phones on a crowded bus. We were alone, right? But mm. here we are going, if only I could talk to someone, you know, it's extraordinary what this is doing to us. Let me ask you on the, um, as we put this back together, what has this crisis, what has this uh, pandemic exposed as far as our vulnerabilities about employment goes and how we treat people who might not have full-time employment? Oh, look, it's exposed so many things. And there's an old saying that, you know, it's only when the tide goes out, you see where the rocks are. Well, you know, the tide's gone out and uh, we've we've built a labour market in Australia now, which is quite different from the one we had 30 years ago. You know, once upon a time, most people in Australia who had a job had a full-time job. Most people who had a full-time job had sick pay and holiday pay and, and a sense of connection to their employer. Now we have enormous rates of casualisation. We have enormous numbers of people working in the gig economy as kind of, you know, allegedly running their own business but actually just working at the behest of someone else. So we've made a very precarious labour market where a lot of people were, were sailing pretty close to the edge and, you know, they're making it work. But then, you know, something like this comes along and a whole bunch of people that were only just getting by have found themselves in a very, very, very vulnerable position. So, yeah, our our labour market rules are, are really unique in the developed world. Again, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, all those Nordic countries have entirely different approaches to protecting workers. And, and they're, you know, very productive, very wealthy countries. They just they've gone a different path than us. We've we've Americanized so much in the last 20 or 30 years and unfortunately this crisis is going to reveal that. We can fix it if we want to. Like we have agency. It's not beyond our wit or our control, but the stories we've told ourselves for years are that we're helping all these casuals by stripping away all of their job security and all of their sick leave. You know, look at America now, terribly sick people who have to go to work because they've got no money, making everybody else sick. Do we want to be more like that or or more like we used to be? When it does come election time, what are some things that we want to be looking for then? What are some things we want to hear politicians saying around rights for employment? Well, look, I think on employment rights, I think we we really need to uh, remove the legal incentives that actually encourage employers these days to take staff on as casuals or sham contractors and just actually look back to the need for everybody to have access to those things, sick leave, 
holiday leave, they're not just good for individuals, they're good for communities, they're good for families, and they're good for the economy. Wages have been very low in Australia. Low-income earners' wages have grown far more slowly than average and executive pay, and, and that's made a big gap between those with the most and those with the least. Seems weird to talk about it in the middle of a crisis, but uh, I think at a time where people aren't sure where they're going to wind up, a lot of people are thinking, might it be me that loses my job? Maybe that's a good time to have a more honest conversation about how do we want to look after people when they do? So, yeah, looking after the unemployed, not exploiting part-time and casual workers in the way we do, and giving people a bit of security. Historically, they were very important things that people fought for for a century in Australia. We've, we've let them fritter away in the last couple of decades, and we can have them back if we want them back. You strike me as someone who has done an enormous amount of work in figuring out where, exactly as I mentioned at the start, you can figure out where people's desires, and I don't want to do this, but I do want to do it now, when people's <laughs> desires comes up against something uh, which I know economists like to call an externality, uh, such mm. as a pandemic or, let's say, last summer, an 18-month drought that ended up burning half the country down. Mm. When the externalities start to really kick in, when the climate change externalities start to kick in, as an economist, do you think, doesn't matter who's in power, they'll go for it. They'll go for, for what we need to get done. I really do. And, and we've seen that. We've seen that this year. We've, we've seen state and federal governments make decisions that we would have thought impossible six months ago. What's the hard part about climate change is you can't fix it after it's happened. Climate change is caused by pumping greenhouse gases into our atmosphere for a century. And what we do today has a trivial impact on our temperature, you know, but what we've done for the last century has had a big difference. The decisions we make in the next 10, 20 years are going to determine what the climate looks like for the next 100. So if we wait, if we wait for climate change to prove that it's devastatingly bad, there's no air conditioner we can chill the planet back down with. But we need to know what our choices are. We in Australia, one of the richest countries in the world at the richest point in history, we've just spent $200 billion buying submarines just in case. Right? There's no certainty there's going to be a war. There's no certainty if we had a war, some submarines would help. But that's the kind of people we are, just in case. We're spending $200 billion on subs. Just like most Australians insure their house against the one in 10,000 chance that their house will burn down. You can live for 10,000 years and on average your house would burn down once. But most of us happily spend a grand or two insuring our house. Why? Because we're terrified of catastrophic risk. So when it comes to climate change, we just need to be as cautious about climate change as we are about house fires and, and wars and just start doing it. It's not, again, it's not beyond our wit. It's just a choice we're yet to make. As an economist, though, do you see a time when the benefits of doing something economically, as far as the economy goes, the benefits of doing something and going renewable and electrifying everything far outweigh not doing anything? Like what country wants to be stuck with a coal plant <laughs> that no one wants to buy? Yeah. Oh, look, we're, we're already past that point. 
like the economics are already at the point that it's crazy to build a new coal-fired power station. It's crazy to build a new coal mine. Now, that's different from shutting every mine down tomorrow and shutting every power station down tomorrow, right? We're talking about what do we want more of and what do we want less of. We are already past the point where it ever makes sense to ever build a coal-fired power station in Australia or anywhere in the world ever again. We're past the point where it makes any sense for Australia to build another coal mine ever again. We don't have to shut down all the ones we've got tomorrow. We just need them to gradually close down as they run out of coal or they get too old and just replace them with the new stuff. We're already at that point, but because of politics and because of symbolism, you know, there are people in Australia whose political career hinges on building a new coal mine. You know, why? Well, to a man with a hammer, the whole world's a nail. It's, if there's nothing else to build in your electorate, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing you want to build. Uh, Do we man. really need one? No, but would I look powerful and impressive if we build it? Apparently. So let's do it. So, yeah, we're already at that point. If we were making good decisions, we'd simply stop building the stuff we don't need. We'd start mm. building the stuff we do need. We'd create a lot of jobs. Our electricity bills would get cheaper. We'd gradually reduce our emissions in the way we need to. There's nothing stopping us except some people who don't want to do it. <laughs> Clearly, as you mentioned, if we watch the magic trick in slow motion, that's the sleight of hand that we see in the middle of it, that actually I don't want to do it. That's why yep. it's not happening. And that's an extraordinary gift you've given us. Mate, I could... Okay, number one, I felt kind of shit the last couple of mornings waking up with the wheelies and speaking to you has made me feel so much better because <laughs> the shit part about climate anxiety, for me at least, is that I'm the only one. No one else cares. No one else gets it. I speak to you, I'm like, oh, fuck, here's a very clever man. <laughs> He's a very clever man with the ear of a lot of lot of influential people, and he bloody gets it. And <laughs> I know that I'm not alone. I look at the downloads of my show. I know that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who align with this kind of worry and just align with the idea of, like, it's fucking simple. I barely finished high school, and I can understand what we should be doing now. And to know that more and more and more people see the world the way you see it does give me a great amount of hope. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, man. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you for talking to so many people about such important <laughs> things and letting an economist talk to humans unfiltered. It's a rare privilege. So thank you very much. It's the greatest thing of my brother's an economist. I adore it. <laughs> I adore it because it's the thing. I've spoken to many people on this show and like the physicists are the hard ones because the physicists are the ones, there's no emotion involved in physics and they're, they're really tricky people to speak to because they go, yeah, of course. Of course the thing's going to warm up and we're all going to die because that's what it will do. But an economist, emotion comes into play <laughs> with economic decisions, you know, and so it's a little more of an easier conversation to have. It's not so brutal. <laughs> yeah, but, but ultimately that's all they are. They're conversations yeah. and economic language, econobabble as I call it, is often used to keep humans out of human conversations about what do we want more of and what do we want less mm. of. We use technocratic, econometric language to just keep everyone out of the important conversations. Shush, let the grown-ups talk. Go back to the kids' table, let the grown-ups talk. This isn't for you, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to piss in your pocket, you're... When you described Australia's approach to carryover credits as <laughs> telling your second wife that you don't have to do the washing up because you did a lot with your first marriage, I mean, that, that actually had an enormous impact on the political class who could smell the bullshit of what the carryover credits meant. 
but it's actually hard language and hard conceptually to break through. And, and a good, clear analogy like that just helps people think, oh, yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> and this is my point that as we, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I, I trust democracy. I trust the people. Ultimately, what else can we do? But you can't have a functioning democracy when we're not actually being open with everyone about what are the choices. There's no free lunch. You know, you can have more of this or more of this, but you can't have more of both. What do you want? I actually think who better to make those decisions than people? But economics, unfortunately, my profession is used in the way that, you know, Catholic priests used to preach in Latin to the working class, Mm. knowing that no one spoke Latin. Well, politicians now use econobabble to keep voters out of important conversations yeah. when when what we have to do is draw people into them. Well, I have to give a lot of the credit for the dishwashing line to my wife, Audrey, who in, <laughs> in the week leading up to Q&A, I was ingesting all of the... The fucking heavy lifting. Man, that research is hard going. When you actually Mm. stare that shit in the face, it's horrible. And it was really hard. And I was trying to dilute it all down and dilute it all down and dilute it all down. It's not, that sort of shit doesn't just come to you like that. You know, I had to, Mm. and I I was was able to workshop it with Audrey enough. And when she heard that one, she went, that's the one. Uh, (laughs) I've got to, I've got to thank her for that. Well, I'd actually gone through that process with a friend and I said, look, I need an analogy. And this, you know, and I I had a couple and none of them were any good. Anyway, I I heard yours and I was like, oh, perfect. Done. (laughs) Job done. You know, because otherwise you have to hold people's attention for too long and you can't do it. And that's when other people win, not because they're right but because it's impossible to prove quickly that they're wrong. And that, therein lies a whole other conversation that I would I would encourage you to go, you probably already know, um, Ian Walker from New Democracy with this whole conversation about a third house of parliament, a citizen jury, which is fucking fascinating stuff, man. That's really, really interesting stuff. But uh, that's another conversation. Mate, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me, brother. Really good to talk to you, mate. Thank you. That was Dr. Richard Dennis. You can get his books where you get your books. Affluenza, When Too Much Is Never Enough, and the follow-up book, Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World. He's very active on Twitter as well. If you like what you heard, do let him know. RDNS underscore TAI is where he is on Twitter. Um, Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this episode today. Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my show producer, Hayley for making all the social stuff happen, Mike Mills on the music, Audrey, of course, for just being freaking good and amazing and the great mother and someone who really redefined what I believed a mother could be. She's an incredible human being and I adore watching her mother the kids. It's the best. Um, speaking of which, G's going back to school this week um, and I'm going to miss having her around. It's been great. <laughs> really, really, it has been great. I know, you know, but there, look, We've all heard that homeschooling is really tough. There's mates of mine who are really doing it tough because they've got younger kids. She's 16. She's self-motivated. She's very driven. She's uh, it's ex- it's extraordinary. Not many people get a chance to witness their kids' high school path and to be able to watch how she works and the effort it, that she puts in and, and their focus and the drive and the scheduling and the self-management of her time. It's so impressive, and I'm just it fills me with confidence about this young woman and. and you know, the possibilities that she has before her, I, I feel really good about. She's a great, great human being. And plus, I just really like having her around. She's a great vibe. She's good value. She's always dancing. Anyway, 
she misses her friends heaps and they're far more fun to hang out with than a couple of old people so <laughs> I'm sure she'll have a great time this week um, I'll see you on Friday uh, so look after yourself if you're going back into work take care if you're going out in the world take care wash your hands don't touch your face look after what you can accept what you can't um, be kind to your animals uh, eat well try and work out if you can sleep well and dream of beautiful things planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 